And while you're turning, uh, I would like for you also to um, take note of those vows that parents are going to be taking in the second service. And there is a vow that is taken toward those children. Four of our covenant children are going to be baptized today. And there is a vow by the congregation. And because uh, we are all one congregation, I want to ask you that question that is presented to the congregation so that I can later on communicate to those parents that uh, those in the early service took this precious vow as well. And I would like for you to raise your hand if you can affirm it. The question is, do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of their child? If so, please raise your hand. Thank you. I will pass that on to them, and I know that that means a lot. That's, a, that's an important vow for parents to hear that uh, they are not alone in terms of raising their children. Now, I'm going to read to you portions of Psalm 139. We will begin with the first verse. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before you have laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Down in verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious. To me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord, we ask today that you would open your word to us. We thank you for precious promises that you make. We know that you are faithful. We thank you that you are involved and in control in our lives from that very first moment, and you even told us when that moment was. And so, Lord, will you teach us today? 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today we're going to address two different issues with the same study. And I hope that you will see how very related they are by the end of this message. Those of us who stand for the sanctity of life from the mother's womb do so because we believe that God has made it clear that life begins at conception at that very moment. But we're in a world, typically, that only makes the distinction between pre-birth and post-birth, or viability and non-viability and various other phrases like that. Some would say, and we hear this not infrequently, that they don't really know when life begins. In fact, some who are for legalized abortion would say that. Doesn't it make us wonder if you don't really know when life begins, why would you take a chance? Why would you err on the side of terminating it rather than err on the side of maybe it is life? But I'm grateful that we don't have to worry about us figuring out when it begins, if we are to believe what God's Word says, He has made it abundantly clear. Now, here's the other issue that I want us to deal with. I did my undergraduate work at Missouri Baptist College. And I had the privilege of beginning my training in Bible and theology under some very godly professors who, if they were sitting here during the second service today, would disagree with what we will be doing. They would disagree that we should be baptizing infants. we deal with that. And they, for the most part, would have been pro-life. We would have a lot of common views in terms of our view of baptism, but they would say absolutely that it is not for anyone to be baptized until they've made a profession of faith. And then they can be baptized based upon that profession. We, of course, give a sign to our children, that of baptism, looking forward to a day we trust when they will make their own profession of faith and confirm that they will remain 
covenant keepers. Those are the two issues. I want us to look at both of them from the perspective of God's pattern. What is the way that he works? And I'm convinced that there is a continuity in the way he works in us. Let's take a look at uh, some of these passages. And the first part of uh, this message, I'm going to go through more rapidly maybe than I would have because uh, I've used some of these passages before. We've looked deeper into them. But I, I want us to see how he works in our children. He considers them, that's babies, human from the moment of conception. If you In Psalm 51, verse 5, it says this. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, if one is sinful, one has a soul because the one that is sinful needs to be saved. And if one has a soul, that is one of the distinctions of whether or not one is human. This passage tells us, indeed, we are human from that very moment of conception. I read in Psalm 139, verse 13, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And then verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He considers babies human from that very moment of conception. So let's start our timeline of when God works in our children. Secondly, all humans have intrinsic value. That is a part of our basis for believing in the sanctity of life because God has shown us that humans, because they are human, have a a special value over all of the rest of creation. They are distinct from the rest of creation. Matthew 12, verse 11. This is Jesus. He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, of course, that's the issue. It's a Sabbath question. Will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. This is just kind of said in a a side uh, way. The issue was that of the Sabbath. But it's saying, look, yeah, animals are valuable. Those that are in PETA and the humane society, I appreciate their concern for animals. They are a part of God's creation. And yet, we must make the distinction between, because God does and He is the Creator, 
the distinction between humans and the rest of creation. And how warped would it be to be concerned for the animals and not concerned for humans and for the unborn? Matthew 6, verse 30. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Again, making a distinction between the earth and humans. He cares for his earth. We should care for his earth. How much more, though, we should care for human beings because they are distinct from the rest of creation. Mark 8, verse 36, again, Jesus. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? The soul is of greater value than anything in this entire world. The point being, humans are distinct from the rest of creation. And why is that? Well, the value of mankind is that he bears God's image. That's what makes him different. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Here's why. If you you murder somebody, here's the problem. It's not just that somebody will miss them or anything else. He gives the basis for the the, uh, worst part of murder is, for in the image of God has God made man. We are distinct from and of greater value than the animals because man is made in God's image. And when you destroy a human, remember, when that's defined from the moment of conception, when you destroy it, you are destroying the image of God, an image bearer of God. James 3, verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. You know, it's not just about destroying people. Even to say um, awful things about others, cursing other men, it's a wrong thing. It is offensive because they are image bearers of God. Not just the good ones. The fact that they are human means that they are image bearers of God. A third aspect. God works in babies even before birth. Jeremiah 1, verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. When was that? Was it after he was born and God looked at him and said, that baby's going to make a great prophet someday. He's got potential. That's not the way the scripture says it works. It says, before he was formed, he chose him, he formed him, he worked in him before he was ever born. 
the timeline moves on of how God works in our children. Further, if we want to look at uh, the language of the Scripture itself, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. We look at the languages and we see that God doesn't distinguish between prenatal, pre-birth babies and postnatal, babies after birth. Exodus 21, verse 22, says, If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury, the offender must be uh, uh, fire whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. Now, the word she gives birth in the original, in the Hebrew, it's her child comes forth. The Hebrew word for child there is the exact same word. In other words, before birth is the exact same word as in Exodus 21, verse 4. The same passage. If a master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. It's the exact same word. There's not a distinction between before the child is born and after the child is born. The same word is used. We can see that in the New Testament as well. Prenatal, Luke, Luke 1, verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, that, that word there, The Greek word is brephos. That baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. That is a baby before he's born. The exact same word is used in Acts 7, 19. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies the same word, so that they would die. The point being, from God's perspective, there is no distinction between the baby before it's born and the baby after it's born. It has value, intrinsic value, distinct from the rest of all creation. Value because... They are image bearers of God, not just when they look like a human, but from the moment of conception. We understand as well that God loves children after birth. I want us to uh, look back in Genesis 17, because now we're moving our timeline of how he he works all the way through from the moment of conception up until birth. And then we see these promises. And he's going to give a sign for that child that would have been impossible to give to the child before birth, obviously. But now he's going to give a sign. And this is what we call the sign of the covenant. And it, it begins in the Old Testament 
In Genesis 17, if you look at verse 7, he says, I will establish my covenant as, as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And then verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you. Remember that phrase, you and your descendants, you and your children. As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. And then we go on in verse 10. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you're to keep. Here's the sign. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who's eight days old must be circumcised. Okay, so here we have a child that God has been involved with from the moment of conception all the way through birth. And then at birth, the plan is for a few days later for them to receive this sign. Every male among you who's eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, uh, those who are not your offspring. That was the only sign in the Old Testament that was given of entrance into the covenant community. There was only one sign to show that they were a part of the covenant people the community of the church. In the New Testament, there is only one sign of entrance into the covenant community, and that's baptism. Instead of circumcision, adults were to be baptized in the New Testament. So what would be the presumption of those who for hundreds of years had uh, been given a sign to their children as well. I want you to put that question on the side burner. In other words, they always had known, when I receive this sign, I will give it to my children because that is God's promise. It's for me and my descendants after me. Put that on a side burner for a moment. And let's look at how Jesus felt about the children after they were born. We already know how he felt about them before they were born. We see in Luke 18, verse 15, people were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me. By the way, that's that same Greek word, brephos. It's the same word used of the ones that were just born, the ones that were pre-born. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Isn't it obvious that Jesus loved the little children? Now, they couldn't understand what was going on. And when it comes to Infant baptism, sometimes that's the argument, an argument against it. Well, they won't remember this. They won't experience that. Well, here's my question. 
What about these children that were brephos, tiny babies, nursing babies? What did they experience? When Jesus took them up in his arms and he blessed them, were they blessed? Of course they were. Did they feel blessed? Well, they probably didn't feel that different other than some loving person holding them. And yet we know objectively they were blessed. And then as they grew up, if their parents were good parents, they did what we encourage our parents who have their babies baptized to do, and that is they were told about that day when the disciples tried to not let them come, but Jesus said, let those little babies come to me. And, and then their parents would say, and you were taken up in Jesus' arms, and he blessed you. You are a blessed child. They experienced blessing whether they felt it or not, because blessing does not depend upon our feelings. It depends upon the one giving the blessing, and that is Jesus. Then we see he puts his mark upon his beloved in Acts chapter 2. Now, before I read Acts 2, I want you to, as best you can, Put yourself into a first century Jewish mindset. It's not easy to do. We have the Old Testament in our background as first century Jews. We have all of our life known that when babies are born, they receive the sign of the covenant, the little male babies at least. They receive the sign of the covenant. And that sign is precious to us because our children are precious to us. We cling to those promises during difficult times that we have because we know God is faithful. That's our background as first century Jews. Now, we sit at the feet of Peter and we hear this sermon of the gospel. When the people heard this, verse 37 of Acts 2, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. That sounds to me as a first century Jew like the Old Testament, when he said, believe and be circumcised. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then these words ring in our ears. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off for all whom the Lord our God will call. And you rejoice because you know that your children are still included in the covenant, in the gospel. The faithful Jew would come to Peter with his child 
ready to claim the covenant promises for himself and be baptized and for his child. Because, they would say, our children have always received a sign of the covenant. And this gospel that you talk about that is even better, I know it will include my children. My theory, it's just a theory, would be that if children weren't included all of the sudden, if Peter and the apostles would have said to the little Jewish mother that brought her children to be baptized along with her, if they would have said, oh, no, 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 we are not including children any longer until they do something, until they make a profession of faith. My theory is we would have read about a riot in Jerusalem (laughs) because they would have said, we'll have no part of this. My children are a part of the covenant and we know it. And they too should receive the sign. Now you may say, well, how come the females now can receive the sign? Because in the gospel, in the new covenant, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, barbarian or Scythian. And so even the sign is given to more. We need to understand as well that covenant children are extra special. I would define a covenant child as a child of a believer. Now, where do I get the idea that covenant children are extra special? Well, as the gospel spread for the first time to pagan cultures, the cohesion of the family was challenged as individual members of pagan families were converted to the faith. Sometimes a husband was converted before the wife, or the wife was converted before the husband. And Paul addresses that situation in 1 Corinthians 7. He says this, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. It doesn't mean saved through his wife, but set apart. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now again, that doesn't mean they're saved. They are not automatic recipients of saving grace. But they have a special position before God. They are set apart. That's what it means by sanctified. Even when there is only one believing parent, the children occupy a distinctly privileged position before the Lord. Now how so? Well, they're set apart from the world consecrated to God by virtue of their membership in the covenant household. That makes them special. They have special privileges being a part of the household of faith. Okay, so conclusions in terms of our, the life issues in baptism. God the Creator is involved in working in children from the moment of conception. Remember our timeline. There is not, in my reading of Scripture, a gap in his work between birth and a profession of faith. There is not that gap. In fact, what we see 
is from the very first days of that child. God is continuing to work. The child is in the moment of conception. He works in them for all of that time. The child is born. A few days later, they receive the sign of the covenant, and he continues to work until one day, Lord willing, they stand before the church with their own profession of faith. How strange would it be to say, yes, God works from the moment of conception to the moment of birth, but then that child's got to do something before he's a part of the covenant family. I cannot imagine that. I do not believe there's a gap of eight years or ten years or however long it takes them to make a profession of faith. The God of the universe is saying, your children are as important to me as they are to you, in fact, more so. The faithful God is saying, I still bless children based upon the parents' faith, like I always have. And it is the Lord Jesus saying, I still take babies up in my arms and I bless them. And him saying, parents, you're not alone. I'm here, and the covenant community is here for you. You never have to worry about being alone and raising your children. Thanks be to God for his love for our babies. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you. How comforting it is that those gifts from you, those babies, are still in your care. And they still receive a precious sign from you. Thank you for that. We know you are faithful. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.